Are the weapons manufacturers financing think tanks playing a pivotal role in structuring our foreign policy to favor war with Russia rather than peace? Are think tanks protecting us from dangerous disinformation or manufacturing it themselves? How did the Canadian military advance economic missions for Canada not at all connected to the rights and will of the Afghan people? How did Canada, the U.S., and other liberators actually continue to make life difficult for the people they were liberating? This week on the Global Research News Hour, on the eve of Remembrance Day, we are turning our attention to the realities of foreign policy that seems to go very much against the sentiment of never again, harnessing more, not less, military conflicts abroad. In our first half hour, Glenn Deason discusses his book, The Think Tank Racket, Managing the Information War Against Russia, which dives into how foreign policy is increasingly set not by the public, but by experts, influenced to a large extent by the elements of the military-industrial complex. Then in our second half hour, Global Research News Hour contributor Paul Graham talks to Owen Shulk about his recent book, Canada in Afghanistan, a story of military, diplomatic, political, and media failure, 2003 to 2023, on the forces shaping Canada's 20-year efforts in the ongoing Afghan tragedy. On this week's program, Remembrance Day Special, The New Framing of Wars Abroad, conversations with authors Glenn Deason and Owen Shulk. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 10th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of Nishinabe, Inyinyu, Oji, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. European settlers took possession of the land of indigenous peoples based on the doctrine of discovery, false promises, and a generally faulty process. The crimes of colonialism and genocide must be corrected and reparations paid for in order to to establish a respectful dialogue between the settlers and the indigenous peoples of this land. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Hair splitters ponder whether human shredded remains can fall within or without the laws of war. Dead babies rarely have much of a say at the round tables of international law, but the Israeli Defense Force never shies away from a chance in pretending to believe that they do, especially when they are Israeli. In such a situation, other weasel words have made their way into regular usage, keeping company with the stretchy concepts of quote-unquote terrorism and the like. The latest is the idea of a quote humanitarian pause unquote, a truly cynical howler that is Washington's preference to an actual ceasefire 
that would suspend hostilities. One could only draw the conclusion that humanity's existence is vicious, stalled by such pauses. That comes from the article Viciousness Regnant, Humanitarianism as a Weasel Word, by Dr. Benoit Campmark, posted November 8th. Stop drinking the Kool-Aid, America. The nation is drowning in debt, crippled by a slowing economy, overrun by militarized police, swarming with surveillance, besieged by endless wars and a military-industrial complex intent on starting new ones, and riddled with corrupt politicians at every level of government. All the while, we're arguing over which corporate puppet will be given the honor of stealing our money, invading our privacy, abusing our trust, undermining our freedoms, and shackling us with debt and misery for years to come. Nothing taking place on any election day will alleviate the suffering of the American people. The government, as we have come to know it, corrupt, bloated, and controlled by big-money corporations, lobbyists, and special interest groups, will remain unchanged. That comes from the article, Stop Drinking Political Kool-Aid, America. Voting Will Not Save Us, by John W. Whitehead and Nisha Whitehead, posted November 8th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. Every speech, interview, and press briefing from the Israeli administration and the IDF are placed as headlines in Western corporate and government-controlled media. In these reports, Hamas is routinely described as a quote-unquote terrorist organization being characterized as such by the Western imperialist states. Even the daily statistics provided by the Gaza Health Ministry documenting each confirmed death are treated with scorn by the Netanyahu government and the White House. U.S. President Joe Biden has stated that he does not believe in the veracity of the data being issued by the Gaza officials. These utterances by the White House and its spokespersons, along with most politicians within the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate, are designed to justify the mass slaughter of Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. That comes from the article, Over 10,000 Killed in Gaza as Biden Administration Transfers More Weapons to the IDF, by Abiyomi Azekigwe, posted November 8th. Until October 7th, Israel had pushed for the definition of anti-Semitism to be expanded to include criticism of the Israeli state and questioning the moral basis of Zionism. Now, contextualizing and historicizing what is going on could also trigger an accusation of anti-Semitism. The dehistoricization of these events aids Israel and governments in the West in pursuing policies they shunned in the past due to either ethical, tactical, or strategic considerations. Thus, the October 7th attack is used by Israel as a pretext to pursue genocidal policies in the Gaza Strip. It is also a pretext for the United States to try and reassert its presence in the Middle East. That comes from the article, Why Israel Wants to Erase Context and History in the War on Gaza, by Ilan Pape, posted November 8th, originally published on Al Jazeera. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The think tank Racket, Managing the Information War Against Russia, is a book published this year by Clarity Press. The author, Glenn Deason, explains that the think tank engines have helped public indoctrination on Russia, uh, achieved by suppressing intellectual discourse through individuals masquerading as experts when the think tanks are actually funded by military contractors and other donors deriving interest from continuing to penalize Russia and other entities. Uh, I read the book in a single weekend and uh, then had a chance to interview uh, the author uh, about the dynamics of the think tanks and uh, what they're doing to our society. And uh, he's with us now. Uh, Glenn Deason is a uh, political science, Norwegian political scientist and a frequent commentator and the author of the book. Uh, glad to see you, Glenn. Uh, thank you and um, welcome to uh, Global Research News Hour. Oh, thank you for having me on. So, first of all, what exactly is your definition of a think tank? Well, the think tanks uh, emerge uh, largely to provide uh, uh, policy recommendations, and uh, they are they, they do have a f- actual function, and uh, they could have a very constructive purpose. That is. Uh, well, what I argue is that uh, policymakers these days they really need uh, to address a lot of issues in a very complex world. So, if the idea that politicians should know everything about everything is uh, quite uh, yeah absurd. So they they need to have some uh, connections and uh, uh, discussion with academics. However, academics tend to focus on very specific topics and issues and uh, often uh, yeah, discussing more theories and methods. So so often think tanks can function as a middleman, if you will, uh, someone who kind of translates the academic ideas and expertise into, for example, policy papers, which can be used uh, to inform uh, decision makers. So in this sense, uh, think tanks can have a helpful uh, purpose and uh, actually be, be beneficial. Uh, what I write, though, is uh, also about uh, the corrupting impact of think tanks, uh, which is, as you suggested, when you look at where the actual funding comes from. Mm. Well, as a journalist, I understand the, the compulsion to, of speaking to a representative of one of these think tanks to get an informed opinion about a subject. Um, you know, was that formal concept in the beginning, was it weighted by corruption to begin with, or, or did it develop and, and warp over time by the financial backers to the point where they essentially became secret allies of the military-industrial complex? No, I, it didn't begin uh, as corrupt. I I think this is a process which uh, evolved over time. Uh, the way I look at it, it would be almost to see it in the uh, through the prism of market fundamentalism, which would mean that every aspect of society is driven by the market, in which now uh, the ability to influence foreign policy is also uh, 
you know, open in the market. And this is the problem because uh, one doesn't have to look for grand conspiracies. Rather, if you have these think tanks, which are very influential and increasingly so, especially since the 1980s, uh, you know, they have a lot of influence. They they are informing the, the in the U.S. They can, they can uh, inform Congress. They write policy paper for the politicians. Uh, they're also there to inform journalists and come with expert opinions in the media. So they, they, they can really influence, uh, yeah, at, at, at all sides. And the, the problem then is, this is political influence. If you're the one financing them, then obviously you can have an influence over their recommendations, which is then shaping public opinion and also shaping public, uh, government policy. So it's... Uh, it's over time, I think it began to become more and more corrupted. And you saw this uh, development as the think tanks grew in influence. Uh, people also recognized their market value that uh, you can effectively buy a foreign policy, if you will. Mm. So the question then is, so who has an interest in uh, in funding these think tanks to actually influence foreign policy? Yeah, I can almost imagine something like a like a cancer that just seems to grow and grow until it's like overtaking the health of the the whole uh, you know society or the community. Um, but I, I want to just look at a couple of examples of of think tanks. I mean, uh, I think one uh, of the more uh, dramatic would be the Atlantic Council. And uh, you mentioned in the book that in the decade from two thousand six to two thousand sixteen. Um, its annual revenue grew from $2 million to $21 million, more than tenfold increase. And in 2006 and earlier, there was not much discussion of Russia, as far as I can recall. It's just, you know, terrorists were still the topic of the day. But uh, the Atlantic Council is rather like the think tank for NATO. And uh, I I'm wondering, like, can you maybe point out... Uh, what exactly did they do with all that extra money that led the world to what we have today? Uh, well, uh, as you correctly point out, uh, they, they are referred to often as uh, yeah a mouthpiece, if you will, for for NATO. So it is to the main objective then is to strengthen the Atlantic ties, cement America's position in Europe. And again, this is the problem when you have these think tanks well-funded and they already have their objectives established and uh, every conclusion then has to effectively, every conclusion has to result in, uh, well, has to be more U.S. presence in Europe. So so this, well, if, if, the, if the argument is set, that means that uh, the, the scope of uh, debate or discussion is already become more narrow. Now, uh, the the Atlantic Council, uh, I think, has been quite uh, important given that they've they've employed a lot of very central uh, American politicians, and that's something I should have actually led with and discussed. Which was uh, not not only does this think tanks pay, uh, well, uh, provide uh, in input to media, expert opinion, and policy papers, but they actually hire out of office politicians, so it becomes like a revolving door, and then. Uh, and then when once someone gets into power, they can then uh, help to well essentially fill those places with the people who have been out of power. So in other words, you have these think tanks who actually sit with a lot of uh, officials who are, have previously been on the payroll or still is on their payroll. So you have uh, 
um, you know, people like uh, Evelyn Farkas, who was a former Deputy Assistant uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, and you have uh, you know Michael McFall, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is also uh, a fellow uh, over at uh, the Atlantic Council. So, and they also have a uh, yeah former Secretary of State. Uh, so, so across the board, you have a, a lot of uh, yeah quite important people on the payroll. Uh, and the, the the problem then is, um, well, the, you have to see the Atlantic uh, uh, partnership between Europe and the United States. It's a huge source of revenue for the United States in terms of selling weapons to Europe. And to a large extent, this is what NATO facilitates. It is to uh, it is to yeah link the European countries into uh, the United States. Uh, well, security blanket, if you will, and also it's a military industrial complex. And given that the military industrial complex is the main financier of these uh, think tanks, this is quite an important uh, yeah, uh, aspect. So it helps to militarize transatlantic relations. And in this aspect, I think uh, the Atlantic Council is it has quite a central uh, role in this. Another, uh, I think, dramatic example of it would be the uh, the think tank known as the Project for a New American Century, you know, PNAC, uh, in which the, the Bush administration was full of representatives from this think tank, uh, you know, Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, who were formerly in, uh, in office under Nixon, I think, and then they returned, was it the uh, well, he was, you know, Nixon, Ford, and then they returned. They had the project for New American Century in the '90s, and then they came back. So that that representative of that revolving door, door uh, maybe maybe explain a little bit about the PNAC role in uh, shaping the policies of the Bush administration with these actors in place. Yeah, well, this is the project for the New American Century. Uh, it was established, if I'm not mistaken, in the uh, late 90s, 97. And, uh, and a key objective, if you go to the website, is uh, they're going to promote U.S. global dominance uh, in the new century. This is uh, so the 21st century has to be one of unipolarity, one where the United States will have global primacy. Now, if, if this is the objective of the think tank, uh, again, uh, all the advice given to uh, to the media, all the expert opinion, uh, all policy papers given to politicians, all testimonies for Congress, uh, you know the the staff they're pushing into governments. This these are all people then who has this same vision, the same goal of uh, yeah U.S. global primacy. And as you correctly pointed out, uh, this was quite an influential one in the Bush administration, with uh, yeah Wolfowitz, Rumsfeld. Uh, uh, yeah, from the K well, you also had these thinkers like uh, Crystal and Kagan. So, very, very key, uh, well, central, uh, uh, yeah, ne neocons as they're called uh, over there in the United States, and um, and the, 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 their main ideas, uh, you know, were about the you know the need to pursue you know regime change in places like Russia, China. And uh, of course, they were quite important. They were a very strong advocate for invading Iraq. So, uh, so if you want to see the main uh, actors who influenced Bush into invading Iraq, there it is. You have uh, Pinak. He filled up his whole administration with uh, these Pinak uh, fellows. And uh, again, that's 
that's the goal they're pursuing. And um, uh, again, the, the finance uh, very predictably as well comes from uh, the arms industry. So it is um, it's a very uh, and then this I think this is the problem of the think tanks. They they create this uh, marriage between uh, well dirty not dirty money but uh, uh, at least uh, the military industrial complex and politicians. So of course uh, you have direct lobbying by by the weapons industry, but uh, what's over, often overlooked is how heavy the influence is through these think tanks. And I think that PNAC was an excellent example of this. Yeah, well, one other thing is the uh, that you, you point out in the book is the uh, issue of disinformation in the media. I mean, it, as a subject, it, it does have certain merits, but it also contributed to nullifying any argument uh, or viewpoint that the West has decided is the truth. Uh, you know, op opposes it. I mean, one thinks, for example, of the white helmets in Syria uh, being Syrian enemies and not do-gooders uh, the way they're portrayed. And, and there's also the, the way they've shifted us into this new McCarthyistic phase uh, because suddenly people are Russian trolls or, or downright evil just for appearing in certain sectors uh, associating with certain people, uh, you know, appearing on Russia Today and so on. Uh, in other words, we don't shake disinformation by providing two perspectives and having the winning argument move forward. Any attempt to give the enemy's argument influence is aiding them. Um, could, could you give us just maybe a, a couple of examples of how the think tanks co-opted the rules for international political discussion you know, successfully via you know, the think tanks countering the disinformation industry? Well, uh, first, let me just say you're very correct. Uh, as with propaganda, the best way to fight propaganda is uh, to have a more open, more more free speech. This is why uh, in during the Cold War, you would have anti-propagandists saying, you know, you, we should have a debate, and for example, between Churchill and Stalin. This is how you get uh, to to the core of the argument. Uh, you can't fight propaganda with uh, censorship, and this is the problem with this so-called disinformation industry. Is uh, how if if you don't have free speech, if you compare two arguments to see which one is the strongest one, uh, if if you don't find the truth through open debate, how how do you how do you decide what truth is? And uh, again, this is one you have a George Orwell. In his book 1984, he he suggested, well, uh, well, this is fiction, of course, but uh, also a, a critique, saying that uh, you know they established this ministry of truth. So essentially, the government set up uh, a ministry which decides what is truth instead of have discovering truth through open debate. And to a large extent, this is a this is what we're doing with the disinformation industry. Uh, we're hiring we're hiring people to determine what is uh, what, what what is the truth. And you know who, who is given this very powerful position? Well, we we, we tend to give it to um, to various uh, ideological uh, leaning groups uh, as well as think tanks. And just as an example, in in uh, you know in the the EU set up some similar you know uh, disinformation centers where, for example, they have a question uh, whether or not uh, there was a coup in Ukraine in two thousand fourteen. And you know, very openly that there was a coup. But if you go to the disinformation website, they say no, it wasn't a coup. It was a democratic revolution. 
Well, that's not even that's not even fact checking because uh, usually they call this fact checkers, but that's a narrative checker. A fact checker would have you know whether or not there was foreign influence, whether or not a democratic elected government was toppled, uh, you know, without uh, you know against the constitution, without uh, democratic support. Uh, th th these are things you can fact check, but you can't. But this idea that you're going to fact check narratives and say no, no, it's not a you know it's not torture. It's uh, it's advanced interrogation techniques. I mean, this is not this is not what a fact checker does. This is effectively propaganda, and um, and uh, we see a lot of this disinformation warriors coming out of the think tank industry. They're 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 effectively yes yeah, spreading propaganda themselves. So it's um, uh, yeah it's uh, it's a very dangerous uh, path uh, we're going down, and uh, we we have the same well another case. Uh, in, in Europe, where they had, uh, um, where with the EU, they were quite alarmed by Brexit, and they said, "Oh, we have a lot of populists coming up, so populism is a problem. We have to defeat them." So, the the, the role of the fact checkers was to make sure that the, uh, which which they openly stated, to make sure that populists don't win elections. So now we're now we're not even pretending that it's about uh, checking facts anymore. So it's. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's just a, a very dangerous uh, path path we have taken. Yeah, we've only got about a minute left, but I, I noticed that uh, you you say that the think tank groups their influence can be kept in check through transparency uh, uh, about the weapons industry backgrounds and of other you know people funding it. But who is actually left in office to actually carry out these mechanisms? who's not themselves now affected by this blight of what, I guess, former CIA analyst Ray McGovern referred to as the military industrial congressional intelligence media academia think tank complex. Well, this is the problem. Uh, again, I'm not saying that these mechanisms exist. I say they would have to be, uh, be, be, be created. And uh, it's worth noting that... Uh, the military-industrial complex, uh, Eisenhower in, in initially called it uh, the military-industrial-congressional complex because he recognized that Congress was uh, a, a, a key problem, that they would be corrupted by the arms industry. And of course, as mentioned, Ray McGovern, he has expanded on it to see how, what areas they corrupt and which uh, obviously uh, the think tanks will be uh, a, a key uh, corrupted entity. And uh, again, this is so dangerous because if you can control the production of knowledge, you can, uh, this is where the real source of power is. And uh, it's, uh, no, I'm not quite sure how you would have this mechanism come into place, but uh, transparency is really the key because if you look in these media reports when they write about, uh, uh, you know, these experts like, uh, What's the best way to to have say to have security in Asia, and it's uh, you know happens to be uh, along the the recommendation happened to be a long shopping list of weapons which the you know founder of the think tank um, produces. Then obviously, uh, if 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 there was a demand or requirement to show that these are not independent experts, but they are actually. Uh, well, effectively uh, paid information warriors from uh, from the weapons industry, then at least people would have more information. But the way they see it now, you have both politicians and the public who often think they're being fed expert uh, opinion and analysis when they're actually being 
you know, the reading uh, marketing brochure for the arms industry. So, uh, so that's why I'm saying the the only way to really counter this has to be transparency. But where it would come from uh, is beyond me. Again, that was part of the motivation for for writing the book to show. Uh, effectively, if you look at the U.S. administration, that almost uh, all the top positions are now, uh, you know, have are people who are, um, you know, fellows in various think tanks. And I use all these cases, for example, with Obama, how his whole uh, think tank government uh, helped to reverse his position on pulling out of Iraq. And you know, it's just if if people know this, then at least they can begin to counter it. But the problem is. Um, a key aspect of propaganda is uh, source credibility, and all this actually propagandists from the weapon industry, they 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 go under the cover of being independent experts. So this is why it's so very, very dangerous and propagandistic. It's a fascinating book, Glenn. I, I, it's been a pleasure speaking to you on this vital topic. Thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. You've been speaking to Glenn Deason, a Norwegian political scientist and the author of the book, The Think Tank Racket, Managing the Information War Against Russia, published by Clarity Press. Coming up after a brief break, Global Research NewsHour contributor Paul Graham speaks with the author of another gripping read about specifically Canadian foreign policy during and following the war in Afghanistan. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Owen Schock is a writer of short stories, novels, political analyses, and essays on film and literature. He's a columnist at Canadian Dimension and has written for Alberta, Monthly Review, Protean Magazine, and many other publications. His most recent book is entitled Canada in Afghanistan, a story of military, diplomatic, political and media failure, 2003 to 2023. It's published this year by Lorimer and available online in paperback and ebook formats and at better bookstores across Canada. Owen's book and what it says about Canadian foreign policy more generally is the topic of our discussion today. Oh, and I'd uh, like to begin by telling you how much I enjoyed reading your book. It's well-written, comprehensive. You provide an historical context for Canada's involvement in America's so-called war on terror. And it's a context that most Canadians are not aware of. And you bring to light many facts about Canada's actions that thoughtful Canadians would find disturbing. So welcome. I'm, I'm really glad to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for the, the invite and thanks for that introduction. Uh, let's begin by talking about the scope of Canada's involvement in the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan that began in 2003. What specifically did we do? Why did we do it? And what impact did our actions have in Afghanistan and for that matter on Canada? Yeah, so in the book, I divide the military mission itself into four sections and each section is represented by a major Canadian operation in Afghanistan. So I go through Operation Apollo, uh, that's from 2001 to 2003, then Operation Athena Phase 1, Athena Phase 2, and then ending with Operation Attention. Uh, that brings us to, to 2014 and the withdrawal. And each of these operations had different tactics and aims, 
but taken together, they paint a picture of Canadian involvement that's very wide ranging. I mean, by the end, this mission cost us at least $18.5 billion. It involved ground, naval, and air troops, special forces operations, psychological operations, uh, development initiatives, domestic propaganda, and more. And these operations were embedded in a geopolitical context that saw Canada work with the US and work with NATO in Washington's pursuit of a certain regional and global order. Uh, so just running very briefly through these four operations that I used to structure the book, uh, we, we begin with Operation Apollo, which was Canada's contribution to Operation Enduring Freedom, the, the actual invasion of Afghanistan. And that involved about 7,000 Canadian troops working hand in glove with US forces. And it ultimately involved almost every single part of the Department of National Defense. It was a very, a very comprehensive uh, mission. And that, that brings us to 2003, where we inaugurate the first phase of Operation Athena, which is based in Kabul. And Athena phase one is meant to support the goals of the ISAF in the capital. That's the International Security Assistance Force and provide security for the new authorities as they organize elections for parliament and president. Uh, so uh, CETA sets up offices during this time. Uh, the Canadian ambassador is welcomed back in a splashy ceremony. Thousands of Canadian soldiers are deployed to help set up this new, this new constitution, the new elections, all of which of course excludes the Taliban and uh, does not empower the true I guess you could say Democrats in the country or those fighting for gender equality or economic equality. It's designed to empower the Northern Alliance, which is this alliance of Northern warlords and militias, uh, Tajiks, Uzbeks and Hazaras, who are for a lot of reasons opposed to the Taliban, which is a Pashtun, Pashtun organization. And Athena in this phase involved police patrols, uh, Canadian planners becoming tight with the new president Hamid Karzai influencing the new government's economic policies toward a neoliberal orientation. And it must be said too that the elections that Canada provided security for here were not exactly the free and fair to use the term that's bandied about a lot today. The warlords were never disarmed despite the population wanting that, knowing that intimidation would follow if they were not. Uh, there were reports of multiple voting and of course foreign money like US money flowing to the winning presidential candidate, Hamid Karzai. And that brings us to 2005 with the second phase of Athena, which in which uh, Canadian forces moved to Kandahar with the provincial reconstruction team. And that's that's really Canada's most significant investment in the war. Uh, once Karzai is entrenched in the capital, uh, the Canadian forces relieve the US military from Kandahar and they bring in this, uh, what's called a 3D approach, the defense development and diplomacy uh, but practically that means that the defense, the military component really, really dominates and Canadian actions in Kandahar could be very heavy handed and they sowed a lot of distrust amongst the Afghan people there. It was really in Kandahar where you see like the, the big military operations, Operation Mountain Thrust, Operation Medusa, the development programs really get going with schools, health, education, the Dahla Dam, polio eradication, uh, you know, very well advertised initiatives that were in the end, not successful uh, if they were ever meant to be, but but they did serve one important purpose, which was obscuring the fact that Canada was involved in this counterinsurgency war and not as it was branded a humanitarian peacekeeping mission. And that goes until 2011 when Canadian troops moved back to Kabul with Operation Attention, which is mainly a training mission 
uh, that lasts to 2014 and then they withdraw. So why did we do it? Why were we there from 20, 2001 to 2014? And what impact did these actions have? Uh, I, I would say the reasons we were there have been very obscured by media censorship on the one hand and also propaganda. The military journalist David Pugliese, he says that this was the most extensive propaganda campaign uh, designed to to convince the Canadian public uh, about the the need for this war since World War II, and it was massive in scale. And you know, it, the narrative that was that was forwarded at that time was that we were there to support human rights, to plant the seed of democracy and gender equality, and the real geopolitical interests, uh, things like regional investment, uh, the arms industry, uh, geopolitics. Uh, all of these things were were not included in, in this narrative. And what was the impact? I mean, all, all the major development initiatives failed. Uh, the Dala Dam was never repaired. Polio wasn't eradicated. Canadian-built schools often had few or no students. Uh, there were, in some areas of, of the country, for sure, life got easier for women. Uh, but Canada's promotion of gender equality conflicted with the views of a lot of the people Canada was supporting in the Karzai government. Like in 2009, Hamid Karzai endorsed a law legalizing rape within marriage and banning women from leaving their home without their husband's permission. And this was Canada's guy. Uh, so I guess to sum up this question, Canada dedicated a lot of resources to the occupation, but they did so out of material self-interest, the material self-interest of the state, and they did not achieve much for the people of Afghanistan. When most Canadians think about Afghanistan, if in fact they think about it at all, they do tend to uh, remember the uh, uh, the military uh, operations, uh, the the losses of of life uh, of Canadians. Uh, uh, perhaps they even think about the the, the many Afghan uh, citizens who died uh, in that conflict. Um, but Canada's role. Uh, and you alluded to this uh, a few minutes ago, was much broader than strictly a military one. Uh, they were participants in, in government in a, in a fairly significant way. I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah, of course. So other than the military role, I think the most important aspect to consider is the economic one. So at, at the time of the mission, you know, we were in that end of history moment, as it was called, after the Cold War, when Western leaders were telling the world that a free enterprise and Western style democracy were the future. These models would inevitably spread and that this was the end of any ideological conflict over economics. It would only be over culture from now on. So the economic model that Canada supported in Afghanistan and around the world was a, a free market model, very neoliberal, that reduced the power of the state and the power and increased the power of foreign actors and international investors, including Canadian investors. So I mentioned that during Athena phase one, uh, Canadian officials became very involved in the Afghan government's economic policy. There was actually a team of Canadian forces personnel called the Strategic Advisory Team Afghanistan, the SATA, who were installed at the highest levels of the Afghan government to advise on economic policy. And they even helped write the Afghan National Development Strategy, which affirmed that privatization and the free market would be the guiding principles of, of the new Afghan economy. Uh, so Canadian officers, they advised the economics team, they advised electoral officers, the president himself, and the SATA was highly influential, like out of all proportion to their size. As part of this new economic model imposed on Afghanistan, we saw a lot of Canadian companies 
invest and secure lucrative lucrative contracts in the country. We saw mining companies pour in, uh, engineering firms, consultants, and more. Uh, and more, we could also say more about the development side of things, like the, these aid initiatives uh, that were so well publicized and celebrated. Uh, in reality, they were mainly photogenic, uh, not concerned with the actual development of the Afghan economy. And at the same time that we saw, we had these development initiatives furthering a certain narrative about the mission, we also had Canadian companies coming in and, and they were the ones who were, who were doing well off of this occupation. It wasn't the Afghan people themselves by and large. Uh, so yeah, the military component was the most visible. It was the most talked about, uh, but the economic dimension and foreign aid, those are also useful lenses through which to examine the mission and to understand the actual mechanisms by which it operated. Canadians have gone to war in in uh, faraway lands uh, many, many times since Confederation, uh, either as part of the British Armed Forces or uh, uh, as allies of uh, American empires throughout the 20th century. And despite that, most Canadians tend to view our role in the world to be that of peacekeepers. In your book, you talk quite a lot about the uh, the gap between the, the the myth of Canadian foreign policy and the reality. I wonder if you can expand on that a bit. Yeah, so the myth of Canadian foreign policy is something I think all listeners will be familiar with. Uh, it's the myth of Canadian generosity in international affairs, uh, the idea that Canada's sole interest around the globe is promoting democracy and human rights. And this myth has helped to craft a national brand for Canada, this benevolent brand. I think you could reasonably call it Canadian exceptionalism. Uh, but in the book, I attempt a deep history of how this brand emerged uh, going back to 1945, when Canada really started to spread its influence around the globe. And then I also look at 1947 and the Gray Lecture of Louis Saint Laurent, where he kind of founded this idea that Canadian foreign policy is first and foremost concerned with moral questions, not economic ones. And this, this discourse of morality still infuses conversations around Canadian foreign policy, and it certainly did uh, during the war in Afghanistan as well. But throughout Canadian history, there's always been another thread that gets neglected if we accept that moral framing, and that's the, the material thread, the economic thread, the question of what the Canadian state's actual material self-interest might be around the globe. So I argue in the book that it's it's always been about access to markets and access to resources, uh, going back to the post-World War II moment and to Canada's first foreign aid program, which was called the Colombo Plan. We see it there too. The explicit goal of the Colombo Plan, uh, which was centered around Southeast Asia, was to fight communism and to encourage those post-colonial nations to adopt uh, pro-capitalist reforms rather than socialist or communist ones. And Keith Spicer, this, this longtime government insider, uh, he said that the primary motivation behind this aid plan was to stop these countries from replicating the Chinese Revolution of 1949, which was a revolution that deprived Western nations of access to China's resources on the West terms. Uh, so that's the, the reality of Canadian foreign policy, I would argue. Uh, Canada, like other nations, is motivated by economic self-interest. And as a capitalist state, that means that Canada's interests are capitalist interests, the spread of open markets, the ability of Canadian companies to invest on favorable terms, to extract enough profit to make those investments worthwhile. And uh, frankly, I think it should be common sense that Canada has these selfish motives in its engagement with the world. 
And yeah, we can go back to more recent wars that Canada participated in with Korea, uh, Vietnam. That was mainly through arms production, not so much boots on the ground. Uh, the former Yugoslavia. There's always a self-interest there, a material and economic self-interest, be it the fight against communism or you know, the arms industry interests, the promotion of Western power. It's always there. But self-interest runs counter to those myths of Canadian history. So it's usually ignored in mainstream discussions of our of our foreign policy, including with Afghanistan. Can we uh, dive a little bit deeper on uh, some of these economic and, and commercial interests, um, particularly as they pertain to uh, Afghanistan? Are, are there companies or industries that benefited in particular from that particular war? Uh, I mean, yeah, totally. So we could talk about like the mining companies. Uh, there's the major mining concession the Hajigak mining concession in Afghanistan, which uh, was a, the largest iron mine in the country and supposedly uh, one of the largest untapped iron ore deposits in Asia. And after the invasion, a Canadian company got part of that. There were you know, many other uh, companies, financial companies that were advising uh, the Afghan government on their policy. There were engineering firms that benefited from, from contracts, including SNC-Lavalin. And then arms companies, of course, in Canada that, that I detail in the book. These economic and commercial interests were very real and they were there for anyone to see. And really, you could, you could pick any area of the world. And if you do your research, you'll see how Canadian corporate interests play a huge role there in shaping our government's foreign policy. It could be the Caribbean, Latin America, Africa, Asia. And absolutely the same was true of the Afghanistan mission. And once you accept that that's the logic that governs our state's decision making, it becomes clear why Canada would involve itself in this war in, to the extent that it did. You know, much like the, the Colombo plan, the war in Afghanistan and the war on terror more broadly, as it was called, uh, was about spreading a certain economic model around the world for the benefit of, of Canadian companies. And it goes without saying that these companies are deeply entwined with the state, uh, with the major political parties, and undoubtedly that influences Canada's international positions as well. But but yeah, you, you could look at, at all these different sectors. Um, I mainly focus on, on mining in my work outside of this book, but I was able to find many examples of Canadian companies in, in various industries profiting from this, from this invasion and this occupation. Uh, former Prime Minister uh, Jean Chrétien had a, a particular interest in uh, Afghanistan, did he not? Yeah, so Jean Chrétien, uh, he flew multiple times to Turkmenistan to meet with the Turkmen pres president, uh, Niasov, and he was there accompanied by Canadian oil companies. And Turkmen oil was a, it played a huge role in the Afghanistan invasion and the geopolitics around it. Uh, you know, it was in U.S. interests, Western interests generally to see a, a pipeline of Turkmen oil flowed through Afghanistan and into Pakistan and India. This was the Tapi pipeline. And Chrétien took an interest in that after he left the, the premiership. And yeah, he flew to Turkmenistan. He met with Niasov. He was with these companies. And yeah, uh, Canada was very aware of this pipeline plan. They backed it in numerous meetings. Uh, the defense minister, Peter McKay, said that Canada would defend the pipeline from Taliban attacks if needed. So yeah, absolutely. Oil, another another key sector here. So uh, the shooting has stopped. Uh, the, the United States uh, finally withdrew. The uh, uh, Taliban have uh, regained uh, control of, of the country. 
um, and presumably uh, um, peace has, has come to Afghanistan. Uh, but uh, the uh, the misery continues. Uh, can you uh, talk about how Canada and the United States and perhaps uh, other countries continue to make life difficult for the Afghan people? Yeah, so in, in early 2022, uh, after the U.S. had withdrawn from Afghanistan, the Biden administration chose to seize the new Afghan government's central bank reserves, uh, which were valued at a total of $7 billion, which is I mean, a huge amount for any country, but especially an underdeveloped country like Afghanistan. And the situation worsened immediately to the point that 95% of Afghans were not getting enough to eat. And meanwhile, Biden ignored calls to return that money to Afghanistan, leaving international charities and organizations trying to pick up the slack and bring, bring the Afghan people some much needed assistance. And, and Canada was implicated in this as well in, in a really shameful way. Uh, so while the Afghan people were struggling to eat, you know, also last year there were reports of hospitals filling up, uh, soaring child malnutrition, people selling organs on the black market to survive. While all this was going on, uh, the Canadian government policy was actually blocking aid from being allowed into Afghanistan. And in August last year, uh, World Vision had to cancel a shipment of food that would have fed almost 2,000 Afghan children because of a federal law that bans Canadians from doing business with the Taliban. And that extends to aid in Ottawa's mind. Uh, there were reports of Canadian officials warning aid groups not to pay drivers to deliver food around Afghanistan because that might give taxes to the Taliban. And this was as these groups were, were telling Western governments that they had warehouses full of food sitting inside Afghanistan that they couldn't deliver because they might be penalized for it. And the situation now, uh, I haven't been following it as closely. I know that earlier this year, the Trudeau government said that they were going to reform these laws to allow an aid loophole. I haven't seen much follow-up reporting on that. I was contacted earlier this year by a woman from Whistler who said that she donated to a charity that builds playgrounds in Afghanistan and she had spoken with the people who run it. She was confident that they would be able to, to work there. Uh, so it's possible that Canadian government is loosening some restrictions a little bit, but as for the situation improving anytime soon, I'm not hopeful. I mean, basically the entire population has been pushed into poverty and precarity. And it seems like the Western powers are keen on keeping Afghanistan frozen in that crisis. I don't know if it's indifference or if it's vindictiveness over losing the war. I don't know, but it's hard for me to see that situation improving in the near future. Well, I guess geopolitically, uh, what, one of the uh, one of the reasons, and you, you go into this in in the book. Uh, one of the reasons for the uh, the American invasion and the occupation. Uh, had to do with controlling that part of the world uh, and and controlling uh, energy uh, resources, the transit of, of natural gas and oil and so forth, uh, and and depriving uh, uh, Russia and China of influence uh, over the area. Is it possible that this continues to be uh, part of the motivation for making life difficult for the for the Afghans to? Absolutely, that's possible. I mean, we I know that China has expressed interest in investing more in Afghanistan, you know, as, as part of this BRI project to try to bring Afghanistan into that, which would certainly bring more money into the country, potentially alleviate some of the suffering there. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned kind of the geopolitics of this invasion, and that, that was a huge part of it. There's a, a big concern in the U.S. government at this time about 
any other country ascending to the point that it could rival U.S. power. And in that region, Central Asia, South Asia, uh, the main concerns were Russia and China rivaling U.S. interests there. Uh, and Iran, more of a regional power, but a lot of concern about Iran, especially because they were forwarding this plan of building a pipeline to Pakistan and India. And of course, as I mentioned before, the U.S. and Canada, they wanted Turkmen gas to go to Pakistan and India because Turkmenistan is a lot more friendly to the West than Iran is. And they wanted to keep Pakistan and India friendly to the West because of this larger geopolitical game that, that I alluded to between the U.S. and China and Russia. A lot of geopolitics involved here. And Afghanistan, you know, it, it has won its war against its occupiers, but it, it remains ensnared in this, this global game. And I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens here. Uh, but as I said before, I don't see the situation improving a whole lot anytime soon. You've uh, co-authored uh, another book uh, that's going to be coming out uh, in 2024 uh, with uh, Eve Engler. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that book is called Canada's Long Fight Against Democracy, published by Baraka Books. It'll be out in, in February of next year. And that book is a history of military coups that Canada has supported. I, I believe it's from 1951 uh, to the present. And we found over 20 coups or coup attempts that Canada has either passively or actively supported. Uh, and you know there are also examples of Canada disregarding internationally monitored elections that don't serve the state, serve the state's uh, geopolitical interests. Uh, we have a chapter on the 2006 elections in Gaza, which uh, obviously is very relevant to this moment. And there are many examples that illustrate the capitalist and the pro-corporate logic that determines Canada's foreign policy decisions. Uh, one of the clearest to me is one of the actually the least known, which was a coup in the 1950s in Colombia that brought General uh, Rojas Pena to power. Uh, Lester B. Pearson was a big uh, ally of Rojas Pena because he was saying, oh, he's going to buy Canadian fighter jets, so we should recognize him. He didn't care what he was going to do with those fighter jets. He just said, oh, this guy was a, a military dictator who came to power in a coup. We like him because he's going to help Canadian companies. And uh, we, we found evidence of this again and again, uh, Guatemala, Congo, Chile, Uganda, Russia, Bolivia, Venezuela, it's just over and over and over. So many examples and so much data that backs up our argument about the nature of Canadian foreign policy. And I think it complements my Afghanistan book well too. You know, these are both books that have as a goal, uh, kind of the demystification of Canadian foreign policy. Uh, an, an effort to squint through the fog of, of nationalism and propaganda and censorship to glimpse the real inner workings of the state. And Eve is one of the best people to read on Canadian foreign policy. I still can't really believe that I wrote a book with them, but I think anyone who enjoyed my book on Afghanistan, they'll get a lot out of this book too. Well, I could hardly wait until it comes out and maybe we can have you and Eve on. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you are a keen observer of Canadian foreign policy. Uh, in your view, what should we expect from the Trudeau government between now and the coming election? Uh, more of the same, I would guess. I mean, watching events in Gaza right now has been truly sickening and disheartening to me to see the conduct of the Trudeau government there um, supporting this genocide that we're all watching, watching unfold. There's another event of relevance going on right now that also kind of 
exposes how, how Trudeau views the world, and that's happening in Panama. It, it's not very well known, but in Panama right now, there are there's a wide range of social movements rising up against a Canadian mine owned by First Quantum Minerals. And that mine has been a focal point of social tension for years. And Ottawa has always backed the company against this, this range of protesters coming out to demand greater equality and more economic security for the country's people. And, and Trudeau has said nothing. Uh, so I wouldn't expect too much of a change. I think we might see, and I may be wrong, we might see a drift toward a less warlike stance in Ukraine. But if that happens, that will be a byproduct of the U.S. losing interest in prolonging that war. I mean, there's a recent article in, I think, NBC about how the U.S. is urging Zelensky to maybe start considering peace negotiations or a compromise of some kind. Uh, but that's, of course, in the context of what's going on in the Middle East. So we, we might see a change there, but I could be wrong. Overall, I think the character of his foreign policy will remain the same as it has throughout Canadian history, this, this very pro-corporate a self-interested stance. Any final thoughts about uh, your book or anything else? Well, I just I just encourage everyone to keep reading about Canadian history, about foreign affairs and Canada's role in the world. Uh, there are many scholars who work hard to, to demystify this national brand around Canada and to get to the heart of foreign policy. And I hope everyone keeps reading and I hope that my book can contribute in some small way to that growing catalog of, of really critical work on our foreign policy decisions. Well, thanks very much, Owen. Uh, listeners who want to find out where to purchase this book can go online to uh, Amazon or to Indigo Books, uh, or for a more complete list, can uh, go to uh, Lorimer Books. It's uh, formaclorimerbooks.ca slash product slash Canada in Afghanistan. Uh, we'll uh, make sure that that uh, goes in the program notes as a link. Uh, and I guess we're going to be uh, continuing our conversation uh, later on this week uh, at McNally Robinson Booksellers in Winnipeg. And I'm looking very uh, looking forward to that very much. So Absolutely, me too. Th and thanks again for the invite, Paul. And uh, thank you. We'll, uh, we'll see you soon. And on the topic just discussed, Owen Schulk will be in Winnipeg tonight, November 10th at 7 p.m. at the McNally Robinson Bookstore on Grant Avenue. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.